On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your co-host, Menas. Joining me as ever is Paul, the summer game. Dennett, Paul, how are you coping with the isolation? Hey, Menas, I'm, I'm going pretty well. I'm enjoying myself looking back at cricket history as I've been doing the last few weeks. I've discovered something quite incredible in 1928, which I would love to have a time machine to see, that they somehow had this massive magnetic scoreboard with discs on it that you could watch in Hyde Park where they tried to replicate what was happening in the cricket down in Melbourne. The crowd were apparently on the edge of their seat when there was almost a run out. It sounds like a primitive but brilliant video game. I've been playing real video games actually in the last few weeks. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> how have you been? We took a couple of weeks off the show um, and you know, there's been a bit of cricket news bubbling away. It seems like, and we'll get into it shortly, but cricket is about to hit a pretty rocky patch when, you know, you look at the board and the CA and the players? Yeah, I think my initial reaction to that was was like a lot of people, that we thought that cricket had dodged the worst of it, with um, cricket in the Southern Hemisphere at least, with uh, the season all but being done. Um, and, yeah, there's a bit of a concern that, uh, as ever, cricket seems to be so beholden to India. Uh, obviously, that's a massive, massive financial centre, but the idea that one non-test series, uh, one home test series against India being cancelled would be enough to put a massive dent in cricket finances does seem a little bit concerning. Yeah. So in this episode of Cricket Unfiltered, we are going to review episode three of Amazon's The Test. And this is the, the episode in which Australia takes on India at home two summers ago. We've got that and we've also got all the cricket headlines and they're going to wrap it up with Can't Let It Go. So let's get straight into the cricket headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. So since the last show, basically the whole Cricket Australia non-executive staff staff has been stood down on 20% pay till the end of June and reports are that um, basically by the end of the financial year or just after, Cricket Australia could essentially run out of money um, and that seems quite amazing, doesn't it, Paul, when you think of, I mean, it's been revealed that $100 million was paid to CA in March. So where's it all gone? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, they trumpeted correctly that the $1.2 billion six-year domestic TV deal that they got, and that payment that you mentioned is one of the regular installments of that. And I especially look back to 2008, where India almost left, and they were basically saying that, if India walk away from this series after the Harbhajan Singh uh, incident, at the time they were floating out figures of $80 million that it was going to cost Australian cricket, which at the time was enough to sort of almost bankrupt it. I would have thought that was a warning to say we can never totally rely on Indian series. We've got to always sort of wait until the money is in the bank and not necessarily bank on it ever coming because the relationship has been so so fractious. And so obviously they haven't done that and that seems to be a bit of a concern. Yeah, I mean, there's so many issues about this. I guess the fact that so so many CA staff were stood down 
uh, is quite worrying. And, and, and the figure is that that saves CA about $3 million, which in the context of, I guess, a $100 million check is not a lot. So you can imagine the sort of CA staff that are on the coalface, and this would be a pretty much a pretty horrific time for them being on 20% pay, as it is for a lot of Australians. But I guess I've got a few comments. Firstly, I don't buy this argument that because it's the end of summer, Cricket Australia have dodged a bullet. Okay, they missed out on having the summer cancelled, as we might see in the Northern Hemisphere. But the fact is, this economic crisis will affect cricket and they will be, it will cost them tens of millions of dollars one way or another. It's just the, the sad fact of what's happened. So I can understand why they're in crisis mode. Um, but, yeah, whether standing down the staff is the best thing. And now we're looking at a divide between the players and the board again, which I'm worried about. Uh, there's been some rumours that CA lost money on the share market. That is just plainly wrong. They invested money in the share market a long time ago. That has made them millions and millions of dollars. And their portfolio has come down like everyone else's. But, I mean, if they were to cash out now, they'd still be up millions of dollars on what they invested. So I think that's gone. That seems to have been something out there that's wrong. Um, now there, there's leaks coming from private meetings. And that's, I guess, what the worrying thing is for me uh, is that, how are we going to see a divide between the players and the board again? Kevin Roberts was at the coalface in the 2017 pay dispute, and that was one of the big issues with him becoming CA chief executive, that, uh, you know, did he bring any of that sort of, I guess, a baggage from that negotiation? And it seems like maybe that's coming up again now. Yeah, and I think that it makes, it's understandable that in the first few weeks of a crisis, not every reaction is as, as it should be. And if, if there's going to be some uh, residual bad blood that gets re-inflamed, for a few weeks, I can understand that. But this is bigger than the, the hangover from the dispute. This is about your custodians of the game. We need to make sure that it emerges from this in a situation where it, it's still financially viable. Kevin Roberts did go through pretty pretty clearly where sort of all the money's gone from Cricket Australia. I think at the AGM a few years ago, they had almost, I think, $200 million in, in savings. And that sort of has been stripped back because of, um, you know, I think 70 million of that almost went to the players in a sort of adjustment of the revenue share. The money's slowly gone out. And Kevin Roberts says that, you know, CA is at the worst point of their sort of cycle uh, of money that, you know, it's between Ashes and Indian series, and they don't quite have that big money coming in. I don't know if that's a good enough excuse. One of our, um, our colleagues in the cricket world, Robert Craddock, is at News Corp. You know, he says that uh, back in the day, CA had this massive um, slush fund in case something happened and the players were like, what do you need all this money for? Well, you know, you need it for times like this, don't you? So to our next cricket headline, congratulations to Elise Perry, Pat Cummins and Manus Labuschagne, who have all been named among... Wisdom's five cricketers of the year in 2020. The other two were Jofra Archer and Simon Harmer. What I found interesting was that the um, editor of the Wisdom, Lawrence Booth, said it was a very difficult decision and that Jack Leach, Josh Hazelwood and Jason Roy were all very unlucky to miss out. Um, so the three Aussies there, which is fantastic, of course, Elise Perry, Pat Cummins, Manus, Labuschagne, uh, the three Aussies. Harmer's an interesting one, the other one. He's a South African coal pack player, a spinner who's, who took more first-class wickets than anyone else in the world two years ago. And uh, he's someone that may, um, 
you know, vault back into the South African side. So anyway, great stuff to the three Aussies. I love wisdom and I love what they do, but their five cricketers of the year have always fallen flat on me because A, you're only allowed to win it once and B, it primarily rewards performances in England, which is great. Um, In the same way that I don't expect they'd be interested in our Dally M awards in rugby league, I'm not interested in their domestic uh, cricket awards. If they changed it and made it the best five cricketers in the year, the whole world, and you could win it multiple years, maybe I'd be interested. But Bradman won it in 1931 and was never eligible after that. It just seems silly to me. But, uh, you know, good luck to them. I love wisdom. I find that surprising. I thought uh, this would be the type of thing that you would enjoy. You know, it has, it's steeped in history and tradition. I like the fact that it's just about the English summer because the English cricket summer does have a certain magic to it, different to the Australian summer. And they have sort of some deep uh, traditions and this is one of them. I quite like that, the recognition that as a you know, foreign tourist that summer, you can break into that list. Yeah, I'm surprised, Paul. No, you make a good point. I love the English summer of cricket. I was looking back, they had the first ever edition of Wisden and they um, were showing some of the highlights in it in which they had a detailed account of the uh, execution of King Charles I from 250 years before. It's, um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it ticks all my boxes in terms of um, massively traditional and huge history focus, but just the top five players, yeah, you know, put on them, but it doesn't worry me. Uh, I mean, obviously, Perry, Cummins, Labuschagne, um, all deserve to be there. Just, just amazing summers. Hazelwood, it was interesting that um, Booth almost had him in the Wisdom Cricketers of the Year because he made quite a stunning return to the Ashes, dropped from the World Cup squad and then recalled for the second test. He didn't play in the first test of the Ashes. So, um, yeah, quite a a sum of him. And I asked Hazelwood about his teammate, Pat Cummins. Yeah, g'day, Josh. Um, Just changing tact a bit, uh, you know, your teammate, Pat Cummins, was named one of the Wisdom Cricketers of the Year. I'm sure he's um, been gloating about that if, in the group chats and all that. But to sort of, can you sort of take us in what it's like bowling with him and what he's like as a teammate? I know you two are good mates and stuff and you're quite close to him, but, you know, what does he bring to the team character-wise? First of all, I don't think he's mentioned the, that being Wisdom Cricketer of the Year at, at all, to be honest. Um, he's sort of... He doesn't gloat too much. You sort of have to draw things out of him sometimes. But there you go. That's one quality. <laughs> um, oh, I think he's just, a, first of all, he's a phenomenal guy around the team. Being such a young person, he's obviously a very smart smart person, but he's learnt very quickly, I think, um, off the field as well as on. He's Obviously, you guys see him on the field and have a bit to do with him off the field, but he's a fantastic cricketer and a fantastic person. So um, he hasn't, hasn't gotten ahead of himself at, at any stage. That was Josh Hazelwood on Pat Cummins. The next cricket headlines, and unsurprisingly, a number of Australian players have had their county deals voided for the upcoming summer. To Lyon, Nisa, Maxwell and Faulkner, just among a few, um, to have their deals avoided, which is obviously no surprise. And uh, I guess, Paul, there's a lot of the headlines at the moment are just speculating on what could happen next summer. What's your gut feeling? Well, I just think it's so hard to, to predict. I think the, the notion of all four test matches against India being played in the one city with no crowds, for example, if that was what it was going to be, I, I think that would end up being a fairly hard watch. Uh, I think that uh, as much as the TV rights are important, there comes a time when it would become, I don't know, there'd be something sad about it. Um, so my own preference is 
you know, on my own preferences, they get a vaccine and we can go back to normal life. But if we can't do that, I would rather be able to have a, a more close to normal series against someone like New Zealand uh, and then maybe postpone the Indian tour for one year. Yeah, I guess you're right that a, a series against India all played at Adelaide with no crowds would be um, very weird. But I could see it happening. I think it's such a compelling TV product. And, you know, you look at those test matches out of the UAE where Australia pays Pakistan and it's no one in the crowd. After a little while, you kind of just get into it and um, you kind of forget about that. So I think it could work. There's a few things being floated around as well. I guess uh, you're right, New Zealand could come. Uh, There could be a sort of an Australia A series. They could play, Australia could play Australia A in all three formats or they could elevate the Big Bash, the Sheffield Shield, and the domestic one-day comp. Any of those ideas sit well with you? I like the idea of them elevating the Big Bash regardless. I think that the idea that has been mooted of really taking this opportunity to say that going forward, Australian players must be available after the Sydney Test match for the Big Bash, I think is a really good one. I, I don't have any nostalgia for the idea of the Sheffield Shield dominating the summer. I know some people say, wouldn't it be great if we could just have a summer where everyone got back into the Sheffield Shield? I love the Sheffield Shield, but the reality is that not not a sizable number of people would get back into it, even if the test players were available. I think the Big Bash, I agree with you, could save the summer, especially with all the Aussie players involved. Maybe if there's borders are open with New Zealand, you could get a few Kiwi players over as there's a few imports. I, I don't mind the idea, though, Paul, of elevating the Sheffield Shield in the one-day domestic comp. I know it's not going to replace Test cricket, but I think that if you have all the Test players available, all the white, you know, everybody available, New South Wales has basically got a Test side. I think there would be something compelling about those contests because it builds on a sort of state rivalry that's already there. I find the Australia A concept a little bit harder to get into because it feels kind of fabricated. There's no real rivalry and when it did work in the mid 90s it was a unique time in that there was this sort of up-and-coming generation of cricketers that was super talented that made up that Australia A side and went on to be some of the best players we've ever had I don't think you quite have that now so you wouldn't have this kind of you know amazing Australia A side taking on the the top side so I think you could get more out of say a New South Wales v Queensland shield match on the telly uh, Smith and Warner v Burns and Kawaja. Yeah, I, I take your point. Um, although it's funny, if they were to have a, a, a Red Bull Australia versus Australia A game and really tried to market that, I'd be um, really interested in that if they had players like um, you know, Glenn Maxwell, for example, playing for Australia A. He'd have an enormous amount to prove. Um, you know, Carey would be playing for Australia A. There'd be a massive um, storyline there if he happened to get a double century. And our fast bowling stocks are such that the Australia A bowling attack would be really, really good. Yeah, I asked Hazelwood about the Aussie, which I'll play in a minute. I guess the only way the Aussie series with Oz Australia could have real meaning is if there was, you know, say there's an, a pre-arranged tour next March. Say the borders are open and Australia's going somewhere to play cricket. And, and that sort of series is kind of a playoff to make the tour that could have something. But anyway, here's Hazelwood on the Aussie concept. Josh, uh, a couple of options are being discussed for next year if the Indians can't come. One is maybe playing an Australia A series or, or perhaps they could, you know, make the Sheffield Shield and the domestic competitions the sort of main focus. What would you prefer? Would you like to take on Australia A? 
in the series? <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be it'd be exciting. It was definitely a little bit exciting in that game we played in England before the Ashes started. Um, a bit of a mixed mixed bag of, of players, but um, it was the strongest strongest 24, 25 players in Australia in, in, in Red Bull cricket. And it was it was a pretty exciting game to be honest. Um, no one no one held back at all. Sort of spots were on the line. Um, so I guess you'd have that same sort of feel in an Aussie Aussie A game in Australia. I think I think obviously Australia always loves an underdog, so they sort of get behind the A team. But um, as you mentioned, with Shield cricket, probably go to a new level as well. I think with all the Aussie players playing and sort of that being the main focus. So I think you, know, you could go a little bit of both if no international teams toured. I guess that would be the the, the top level of cricket. I guess Hazelwood's a fan. Uh, the other two issues for next summer, Paul are. And I sort of slipped my mind. The women's 50 over World Cup is due to be played in New Zealand next February. So that looks like it's going to be threatened by this crisis. Plus the qualifiers for that are this July, which, you know, you would think will be hard to play. And, and then, you know, the World T20 that Australia is supposed to host, that's going to get bumped. So, I mean, next year is going to be a mess. To predict is just so hard because it's the sort of thing that if we listen to this podcast in three months' time... If you make hard and fast predictions now, we'll be chuckling. We'll be just thinking, oh, well, they didn't see that coming, did they? And Sean Marshall predictions... will make 10,000 test runs. I've said it. <laughs> I hope you're right. I hope you're right. <laughs> All right. That was the Cricket Headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered Podcast. We're going to take our first break. I just want to remind you, if you've got a moment, go on and rate and review the podcast on whatever app you listen to the show on. It's good for new people to find the show. Uh, if you're on Twitter and Instagram, we're on there, at AusCricketPod. That's A-U-S Cricket Pod. And just go back a couple of episodes. My co-host, Paul Dennett, has made a couple of special history episodes, one on Bradman and one on the history of TV coverage from England. So go back to them. They've been very popular and uh, you, you don't want to miss them. All right, coming up after the break, our review of episode three of Amazon's The Test. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Menes. I'm with Paul. And it's time for our review of Amazon's The Test. We're going through it episode by episode. We've done the first two episodes. So Australia in England playing their five-match one-day series that they lost 5-0. Then they played Pakistan in the UAE and they lost the series 1-0. They've now arrived back on home shores. It's the first home summer since the Sandpaper Gate affair. So it had a lot riding on it. Paul, what did you think of the beginning of the test when it started with Nathan Lyon about to sing the team song? It's funny that the first two episodes, within the first few seconds, I was hooked and ready to watch. This one I wasn't, not because of the quality of the show or anything, but I just have such bad memories of Australia losing that series to India that I find it painful to watch. And it just reinforced to me how badly I took that and that Remember when uh, Pat Cummins got hit for four by Stokes in Headingley and England had that famous victory? And for so many Australians up at two in the morning, it was a horrible time. It didn't bother me as much as it should have. And I think now, looking back, I realise that I'd had my pain um, during this series. For Australia to have never lost to India and then, be, you know, with the whole sandpaper gate uh, ramifications echoing the background, to lose to India... I think it is the well, single most alert. disappointing. Spoiler alert. 
Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is the single most disappointing aspect of cricket I can ever recall on the field as a fan. Wow. Wow. Sounds like it had quite a powerful effect on you, Paul. My feelings like that are more, was it the 2010 home ashes? Um, Was it 10-11 or 9-10? Yes. 10-11. That has the same sort of horror for me, losing to England at home for the first time that I'd win. Yeah. The difference to that was... I'd seen that before, 86-7, two years before you started following cricket, we'd lost um, equally terribly at home to England in a a shamozzle. And so there was precedent for that, but there was no precedent for us losing at home to India. So, yeah, the test test episode three starts with Lion about to sing the team song and then it flips as always before it gets there and it takes it back to the beginning of the summer and you've got the players talking about what the summer means to them. Guess what? They're cricketers and they like cricket. Uh, so um, you, we all know <laughs> that. Uh, and then we sort of hear a little bit about Payne and that talking about Coley and they're kind of setting up him up as the sign of, you know, villain or the, one of the central figures in this sort of couple of episodes of the test. And I like that because, I mean, he was the walking headline when he toured here. So I thought the test mirrored that. And we also got a, a look at them putting up the signs elite honesty and elite leadership, which uh, came back to haunt Langer so uh, famously. Yeah, I found it interesting. We are in an era where other sports and cricket are going heavily into data crunching and sophisticated analysis. I hope that when the cameras weren't rolling or, or they chose to edit it out, they did have some more sophisticated analysis on just what part of the pitch to bowl to him and how to set the field rather than just talking about him from a psychological point of view. I fear that they probably didn't know. And I think that maybe Australia in terms of uh, highest quality analysis, maybe still have uh, a little bit that they can improve on. Yeah. And there was also a lot of talk in those meetings about selection, which was interesting. Langer wasn't sure about Finch. Langer was saying that he wanted to stick with head because he's a good prospect and a good person. Um, what's what really stood out to me though, and I mentioned this originally, was JL raving on about the movie A Star Is Born. He he just talks about it so uh, enthusiastically. Now I have to go and watch this film. Have you ever seen A Star Is Born? No, I've okay. barely even heard of it, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> it's um, what is it? Um, oh, I've gone blank with who it is, but anyway, I'm going to watch it for the next episode so I can give you my review of whether A Star Is Born is as good as JL says it was um yeah so they had a lot of you know talk about selection in those meetings i thought that was interesting because that summer there was i mean the selection thing was a very contentious issue and it seemed like it sort of filtered through to them that they felt under a lot of pressure Um, but then they settled on marcus harris to make his debut in the first test of the summer and uh, mike hussey presented his cap so first test in adelaide india win the toss Bat first and uh, two for 15. Coley comes to the crease and then Usman Khawaja takes a stunning catch to his left. An incredible. I'd forgotten how good that catch was off Coley that first morning. Um, amazing stuff. Yeah, it was. It was just painful. Every time something good happened, it was like a, my hopes came up. But I thought, oh, maybe, maybe this doesn't end so badly. So, yeah, as a, as a ripper of a catch. So, India make 250. In Australia's reply, they're all out for 235. And uh, there's a nice little passage about of Harsha Bogle talking about why he likes test cricket because he can use words like resilience and defiance. Test cricket mirrors life that you go through difficult phases, but you can't just give up. You've got to battle through. I thought that was quite a good insight. And if, for someone who doesn't maybe know much about cricket, I think that was valuable. 
I agree, definitely, 100%. So then Australia, um, so they're behind on the first innings, 15 runs. So they're still in the game. India comes out, though, makes 307. Lyon gets six for 122, and Australia sets. India sets Australia 323 to win. Payne reminds all the players that, um, you know, what they did in the UAE and not to give up. Uh, and then it doesn't start very well. Finch is out, caught and close. He didn't hit it, but he didn't refer it. And he was not happy. Uh, he asked Harris, who said, you refer it if you want, but he didn't. And, uh, yeah, Finch was not happy, and either was JL. Yeah, and this is one where, uh, as I've said many times when we're discussing this documentary, it shows overwhelmingly to me how happy I am that Justin Langer is our coach. But I didn't think that his reaction here was warranted because ultimately I think Finch... Even though he got the decision wrong, he got the decision wrong for the right reasons. That everyone says you're supposed to not squander reviews. And if you're not sure, if you think there's every chance that, you know, he, he felt a touch on his glove, didn't know whether it was his pad or the ball, his partner wasn't sure. I think that, you know, the prevailing DRS wisdom is that in that case, you probably wouldn't refer. So for Langer to run down the stairs to meet Finch in the dressing room after he's out, nothing can be changed now. And that was just, to me, um, I didn't understand why he had to run in there and then look aghast at Finch having uh, got the decision wrong. That was made totally with the benefit of hindsight. And if I was Finch, I would have taken that as a message to, to me, okay, I'm going to review everything from now on. Um, if I'm going to get in trouble like that, bugger it, I'm going to review everything. So I think that was a, uh, a minor piece where I would think that Langer did the wrong thing. It also touches on to me, I want to see more technology in the game than less. And... Um, I'd be more than happy for everyone to have three reviews. I want to get decisions right. And people who say, oh, no, you, you can't go overboard on technology. Well, look at what happened here. The wrong decision was made. It's not ultimately Finch's fault. It's that it's hard to get the decisions right. The umpire got it wrong. We have the technology to get them right, and we did not use it. Yeah, and wasn't a howler. I mean, the DRS is principally there for the howler. It's pretty close to Finch's glove. If he wasn't sure, Okay, you know, it's not, I see, I'm with you. It's not, it's not one I'd be running down the stairs. If I was in his position, I probably would, would have done the same thing. Like, he, he, he might have regretted it five minutes later, but in the heat of the moment, when everything's on the line, you are going to do things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Stray collapsed. They sort of, you know, ne- never looked like chasing down the 323 until Lyon and Hazelwood, the last pair, put on, I think they put on 30-odd and got Australia within 31 of uh, India's total. I did enjoy Lyon saying, you know, to him talking about batting the way he, you know, he feels confident with the ball, but with the bat, he doesn't. Um, and, if, you know, it's tough for him, but he feels like as a batter, you're never alone. You've always got a partner, which was, I thought it was an interesting insight into Lyon's mindset. I've forgotten how close we, we came to, the, to that win. So Waitley, Jared Waitley, at the end of that test on this documentary said that the Aussie team's performance resonated with the public at the time. But, but, but my memory is it didn't. Like, okay, Australia sort of fought to the end, but I don't remember the Australian public getting behind the team at this stage. Oh, I think it was a transition phase. I was behind the team and happy with the way that they were playing. But for me, the whole situation was just still, still too raw. And I was just still thinking I, I couldn't get over that we are a diminished side because of our own cheating. And, you know, we're, we're getting our comeuppance and that was enraging me. <laughs> I still feel that way all this time later. But in time to come, I definitely think that Waitley's point was true. I think maybe for me, and it sounds like with you, it hadn't quite happened at that point yet, but it did happen. Yeah, I wouldn't say it happened till I think it was almost that 
campaign and we'll get to it sort of leading up to the World Cup where the team started to gel. Anyway, it, it, I just think maybe that was a bit soon. So Australia heads to the Wacker, second test of the series. They're down 1-0. Before the second test, some amazing coaching insights from the large coaching crew gathered worked out that Australia was losing too many sessions to win tests. I found this um, a little bit bewildering. The test matches that they were analysing were two losses and a grimly fought draw. Uh, it stands to reason that they were going to lose more sessions. It would be like if you're a soccer coach and you've had two losses and a draw, doing a half-by-half half analysis and saying, we just seem to not be winning the halves. It's like, yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> Australia wasn't winning the sessions. We weren't winning the matches. I, I just found this to be almost pseudo-analysis. You know, the, the reaction coming out of it was, oh, we've got to win more sessions. It's effectively saying, we've got to get better at cricket, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. We've got to score um, more runs fantastic. than them. We've got to score yeah. more runs than them and take more wickets. Uh, so there was an interesting exchange by, between Saker and Langer. And, of course, Saker's now not part of the Australian coaching setup. Saker says, Finchie can't bat at the top, not in Australia. And then Langer's reply was, well, then he can't play, mate. And that whole Finch opening thing was a saga at the time. And we see even in behind closed doors, uh, there was some dispute. Yeah, and you know me, I'm not always um, all that uh, in favour of batting order being significant. But in this instance, I probably think it probably was. And that uh, what I don't understand is why Langer was so opposed to Finch moving down. I mean, if he slotted down to number five, Kawaja could have opened. It would have meant Sean Marsh batted at three. That's fine. Hanscom bats at four, that's fine. Head can stay at six. I don't think there's any major problem there. Uh, and I just found it interesting as well that Langer, unless it was off camera, didn't give his viewpoint. He just kind of shut Saker down. Sometimes that's okay. I mean, the, the head coach is ultimately the one who lives and dies by the decisions. So I don't mind that they've got a bit of, you know, the Sir Alex Ferguson, it's my way or the highway attitude. But in this instance, I, I think that, it would have been nice to Langer to say why he thought that. Yeah, and it's um, even now it still sort of rankles that, you know, Victoria didn't bat Finch at the top of the order and yet Australia were. So there were, there were big problems. And Saker, I mean, he's from Victoria, so maybe he knew Finch's batting better than JL. But, I mean, two years later that doesn't look any better. So JL... Um, so this match is in Perth, obviously, and that's where he's from. So he talks about how he loves his swimming, meditation, and good breakfast every day. I mean, I like swimming and breakfast too. I might meditate sometimes now, Paul, especially in this isolation. And then, you know, it's the first ever test at the Optus Stadium. Um, and Australia win the toss and bat on a green top. And I, I did enjoy Langer talking about that feeling as an opener of, you know, when your captain wins the toss and agrees to bat on a green top. Yeah, that was awesome. I loved that and how he was really wishing that he was still playing and um, maybe we should have picked him. And the, and the talk of how Steve Wall would, would bat when it was imperative to get through those first two hours and if they could, then they'd, um, then they'd succeed. I, I found that really captivating, yeah. The other thing I found captivating was that Marcus Harris has obviously been an opening batter his whole career and batted with the most easygoing blokes in the history of cricket because it, it said here, revealed, that Finch told Harris, you have to face the first ball of this game. I did it in the Wacker and he got out in the first over, I think, in the second innings. He said, he's not doing it. This time it's your turn, Harry. And he's like, I've never done it before. I mean, I used to open the batting as, you know, as a kid a lot growing up and you would always have a system either you take it in turns or you'd pick ends and then it was whichever 
and they decided to bowl from. But you would never just go let one bloke have to take the first ball every game. It's also strange that Finch seemed to spring it on him as they walked out to bat. That if he's never done it before, he probably would have been nice to him to know about it earlier. Maybe Finch didn't know that that was the case. I don't know. But it was, a, it was a strange little moment. How did Harris think it was okay, though? I mean, that is just incredible. I, I, uh, that, I can't believe someone's 26, 27, openly batting for Australia, has never faced the first ball of the game. I mean, anyway. Unless Finch was being slightly embellishing it. You know, maybe, um, maybe he's faced it a few times. Yeah, okay. Um, maybe it's schoolboy cricket or something. So Finch and Harris make 50 each. Australia make 326. India are, rock, are two for eight in reply. And then um, Lion Virat comes to the crease. And Lion says, you know, I've always thought Virat's like an Aussie. He's got the Aussie fight in him. And I don't mind that because I think Australia are fighters. But the insinuation is that no one else is around the world. Yeah, I know. You can see why other countries think we're a little bit arrogant because... I, I have two viewpoints on this. One, it's an arrogant thing to say, that, as you say, as if other countries don't fight. Uh, but two, I also think it's kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> Typical Aussie. Um, so um, Coley made his 25th test century on a, on a tough track. And I, Langer said at the end of it, Coley is the best player I have ever seen. Now, when you think about Langer, you know, played against Tendulkar and Lara, who he played with. I mean, he's Smith now. That's an incredible compliment. Yeah, and it was, it was a powerful piece of TV. Um, I almost agree with him. I think that uh, certainly he's the best Indian player I've ever seen. Um, and he'd be right up there along with Steve Smith and, and Ricky Ponting probably is the best batsman that I've um, ever seen. But um, the best cricketer I've still ever seen, Adam Gilchrist. But that's just, that's just me. We're talking about Langer. Um, yeah, I thought it was a powerful piece of TV. Mm-hmm. Uh- and then, and then we get to a really interesting passage of the documentary. Australia in their second innings are desperate to set India a, a difficult chase in the fourth innings and, and the, the pitch is uneven, so the bounce is going up and down. We see the you know, Harris, Finch, Usman Khawaja, all of them start to get hit a lot. We also see Travis Head say that he was scared shitless facing that attack on that pitch. So, so, and it really did take you into that sort of ferocious nature of the, the test cricket can be sometimes. I think that Travis Head saying that was so refreshing. It's almost compulsory that every batsman ever, when they say, well, you actually scared? Oh, no, I wasn't afraid. It's, you say it without even thinking. Of course you must have some sense of fear. I certainly would. But um, I like the way that he said that. Interestingly, that pitch got the, what was it, an average rating. So it was the lowest rating you could get without actually getting um, demerit points. And in the aftermath of that, I remember, uh, well, I've been reading about it again now to refresh my memory, but Tendulkar, uh, Michael Vaughan, Shane Warne, Mitchell Johnson, all rubbished the match referee, Rajan Matagali, for, for making that decision. Yet you look at it and think that was quite dangerous. And as much as it produced captivating cricket, the, the ICC has a duty of care to the players. We don't want to see a player getting seriously injured. And so I, I think it was probably a fair rating. It just shows how difficult it is to get a good pitch. Yeah, and uneven bounce is the the thing that's the most dangerous. Mm. And we saw it there, uh, some steepling bounce. So it's almost impossible to play balls that shoot off a good length and aim for your head. Um, so I'm more with the match referee on that one. And now we get to a, a fascinating sort of confrontation between Tim Payne and Virat Kohli. The match is at a a flex point. Australia are on the verge of getting a target that's probably out of reach for the Indians. Coley knows it and he knows he needs to get wickets. 
and Payne decides, I'm not going to just take this anymore. I'm going to start to talk back to Coley, despite saying that they wouldn't. And then it kind of kicks off and we hear some of the stuff uh, from the stump mics. And we also hear Langer saying to the team after one of the days, oh, there's a double standard. Coley's sending us off, but we can't do that. Interesting, a good bit of the documentary. Yeah, it was very interesting. And I, I think that what Payne did, uh, at least it never veered into anything nasty. And I, and Coley was clearly up for it as well. Coley was uh, was chuckling along in and of itself. I understand the the viewpoint that that was Payne taking control of the side and, and standing things up to, to Coley. I was surprised that Langer was quite so emotional about it. I, I When he said that, that, that thing about the double standards, I was expecting to hear something more like from him, let them chat all day. That shows that we've got under their skin. We'll just focus on the next ball and let's get this lead bigger and bigger. Yeah, I think that we'll was win the, the game. So I think that was the sort of former player and competitor in Langer coming mm. out. That that bit of him that's sort of still a player that, you know, if someone's going to go at you, you're going to go back at them and you're not going to take a back seat. That kind of attitude. Yeah, but I could see how the players reacted positively to it. You'd love it, if, um, especially what he said to... Um, was it Murali? Was it Murali VJ that he said to? Um, yeah, how can you possibly like the guy? Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty funny. Go, I just, I just thought it showed some kind of I don't know lack of awareness from Langer to think that why they're double standards because Australia's behaviour was under the microscope because of what they did. Mm. You know, you, you can say, you can let India do what they like, but you can't change the fact Australia did what they did in South Africa and they did what they did in the couple of, the, their behaviour was the way it was. So you can't turn around and say there's double standards. You know, a couple of matches before you were saying we set the standards and we have to live by them. Now you're saying there are double standards. I thought that was a, just, a, you know, as I said, a little bit of the play coming out. Yeah, and I think to be fair to Langer, um, he hadn't been involved in the setup during the years when it was really bad. But when you look at Australia as a whole, if you survey anyone in the world uh, and say who's the, the sort of nastiest and poorest behaved players, Australia's going to come out number one, whether that's right or wrong. But I don't think there, there was a double standard either. I think that um, in general, the umpires have been quite fair. I agree. To, um, Wasn't a double standard. So... It's all set up. Australia sets um, India a pretty sizable fourth innings total. Payne and uh, Coley have this little clash and then sort of goes to Nathan Lyon dismissing Coley uh, in the chase and, and, and that's the new Australia. This is the new Australia's um, sort of Payne's leadership has emerged with that clash and this is kind of seen as the starting point of the rebuild. Australia win the test. It's the first test win for Payne as captain. It's the first test win of JL as coach. It's the first test win for many of the players like Finch and Head and all those players that were um, just making their way in test cricket. Lions about to hit the team song. So Australia's back in this series. You know, it's one all, but Australia's going to win. Our record's going to stay intact at this stage, Paul. I'm up. I'm feeling good. Uh, Australia's coming back. Yeah, it's a good point. And this is probably one instance where you know, the documentary was finishing. They had to find a positive note and, uh, you know, gently play with our emotions to lead that expectation. So when the when the calamity comes in Melbourne, that it's going to be all the more shocking for it. So, yeah, I mean, that's the way that documentaries have to be. And that was our review of episode three of The Test. Go and watch episode four before our next episode coming up next week. Um, because uh, that will be the end of this series. And Paul may have spoiled the result for you, but 
but it's a really good watch. So go and watch it. Um, and we're going to take our final break. Then we'll be back with Can't Let It Go. I just want to remind you, this is the perfect time to send in your correspondence for listener mail. So you can uh, reach us at Pod. That's A-U-S cricketpod at gmail.com um, you can also send us messages via Twitter, I'm on at amenners, A-M-E-N-N-E-R-S where are you Paul? I'm on Twitter at the underscore summer underscore game. Yeah so sending questions, next week we'll read out any questions and there's a couple of reviews on iTunes I want to read out so if you can go on and leave a review on iTunes I'll read them out next week. Right coming up after the break, can't let it go <music> Welcome back to the final segment of the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Andrew. I'm with Paul. And Paul, what's your can't let it go for this week? Well, uh, as some listeners may know, I'm doing a series of uh, cricket mini history pods. I've done my first one on Bradman. The second one is almost ready to go. And so please keep an eye out for that. It'll be um, dropping in the next couple of days. But I've been in um, touch with Peter Baxter, who used to be um, the uh, person in charge of Test Match Special, the famous radio show in England. And because uh, I was chatting to him about an old documentary that he'd done and wanted to use a little piece of it um, in the podcast, which he kindly agreed to. But uh, because he's such a nice guy, he mentioned that he has been up to the Brisbane Exhibition Ground, which is the ground that was used before the Gabba, where Don Bradman played his first ever Test Match. And I had just assumed that the Brisbane Exhibition Ground had long since been demolished. Not but in actual way. fact, it still exists and is still, by and large, in many ways, looking quite how it would have done in exactly. 1928, yep. 29. So he sent me a couple of a couple of photos uh, of a plaque for, for, for Bradman and a couple of the grandstands. And I've just got to say, I've been to Brisbane many times. I have never taken advantage of what is clearly their number one tourist attraction. And I just can't let that go. We should go there together. Um, I knew that because my... Good. Uh, friends Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon once recorded one of their podcasts from the ground and they um, said, you know, this is where Bradman played his first test match. So uh, we should go there next time. Sleep, sleep the night there and see if yes. the police kick me off. Yep, yep, <laughs> definitely. Um, so that's if we're allowed to travel next summer. My can't let it go, and this is a bit of a self-indulgent one. I've, I've, I've been playing a lot of video games while I've been in lockdown and I've got out my Ashes 2017 on the PS4. So it's pretty up to date. And, you know, people can do what they want, play World Championship Test Series, but I am hooked. I'm playing the Aussie One Day Domestic Cup, the 50 over competition. <laughs> I'm New South Wales. And this version's two years old, so it's still got the CA11 involved, which is all. you hate it. <laughs> so I can bounce them. Um, I've, been, and I've played games already at North Sydney Oval, the Wacker, the SCG. And now I've just started the game at Blundstone Arena. Uh, I've got to say I'm captivated. It's got all the players, like all the, the real players from all the state side, and it looks great. Um, the, the grounds look like they really look like, and, and I feel like I'm playing in the domestic one-day comp. I've even been tweeting the results like they're real games. So, yeah, I've, that's me. Just That's how bored I am. I'm playing the one-day domestic cup, ball by ball. What would be good is if they could allow you to go back in history and play it under any incarnation. So you could get the old, um, the uh, the Mercantile Mutual signs where you've got 150 grand for smacking one. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, get the War Brothers batting in the Blues middle order. Well, that is my can't let it go for this week. Um, the irony is I bought like five other new video games that are awesome. 
amazing, but I'm stuck playing <laughs> the one-day domestic cup from a, a two-year-old <laughs> version. That's how much I um, like and miss cricket. My uncle once said to me, we were playing this game where we were, we were rolling marbles uh, in the uh, cardboard box that a board game had come in instead of playing the board game. And we were just racing the marbles and eliminating them. This is when I was a, a boy. And at one point, I, I now realise how, how bored he must have been. But he looked at me and said, Paul, of all the billions and billions of people in the world, we are the only ones doing this. You <laughs> might better be the only one playing that game with that version. I love it. I think you're right. Well, listeners, that's it for this edition of Cricket Unfiltered. I've been one of your co-hosts, Andrew Mensel. As always, I'm with Paul Dennett and we'll be back next week with a full show, but also stay tuned for Paul's Bradman special. (laughs) 